Okay. Uh, by the way, we're not going to be, so I'm just going to say it up front, we're not going to be looking at a lot of passages of Scripture today um, because I, this is going to be sort of a summary of a lot of the things we've discussed uh, in, in the last few months. But I would, it might be appropriate for us to just start with Psalm 19. So if you do want to turn to Psalm 19, some of you are familiar with this psalm. Um, about what we call in, uh, in theological terms general revelation and special revelation. Uh, uh, Christianity is a revealed religion, right? We, we, just don't, we would not just sort of intuitively come up with this. That we, we, it's, it's necessary for God to reveal Himself to us, and He does that in various ways. Uh, one of those is through general revelation, which is uh, primarily through what God has created. Uh, he does that through the function of the conscience, Romans 2. He does that through historical, sort of, sort of God's providential dealings through history. But the thing that makes general revelation general, and you have to keep this in mind, is not the information that it conveys, but the audience. In other words, general revelation is something that is accessible to all people at all times. So general revelation is what God revealed from the very beginning of creation to his people. So whether you live in East Africa, whether you live in Germany, whether you live in Canton, Georgia, everyone has access to this information. Okay, that's what makes it general. It's, it's because the audience is general. As opposed to special revelation, which is specifically, in some cases, words from God, specific words from God, um, uh, this, we, we put Christ himself into that category. God has revealed himself in Christ. Uh, but it's to a specific people. In other words, people have to hear these words. I mean, Paul says this even regarding Christ, right? I mean, you, you have to hear the gospel to call upon the name of the Lord, Romans 10. So this particular psalm deals with these two aspects. It sort of looks at the general revelation through creation and then moves on to talk about what is necessary for both salvation and sanctification, and that is special revelation through the Scriptures, beginning in verse 7. So let me just read it. The, heaven, the heavens, uh, verse 1, are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Uh, their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world... In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. And so it's just saying, this is general revelation. It's, it's always there. Uh, it's continual. The heavens are constantly uh, telling and declaring the, the, the glory of God, or as Paul would say in Romans 1, beginning there in verse 18, that, that the Lord, through His creation, is revealing His existence. He is revealing His glory, His power, His might, for which all people are held accountable and for which all people will be judged for their suppression of that revelation, right? So they know God exists. They, they know they're going to be accountable uh, every human being knows that, whether they acknowledge it or not. Uh, and our, we were talking about this in our, my men's group this week. Um, there, are, there is really no such thing as an atheist. There are only theists, right? It's just, it's just some theists suppress, the not, suppress that knowledge for one main reason, and that is because they love their sin. I mean, ultimately, they don't want to live with that reality that they are accountable to God and they're going to face God in the judgment. And so... 
They will be accountable for this revelation from God, but this revelation from God is not enough to save them. It is enough to condemn them, but it is not enough to save them. For that, they need special revelation. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me, and then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression." Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So we're going to kind of tie this in. Uh, We're going to talk about this and some other things this morning. Uh, Obviously, if you've been with us, we've been for the last uh, several months looking at what has to say about fear and worry. And I've printed for you some of those uh, diagrams. Again, I sent some of this information via email to those of you who asked for that, but just to sort of give you some of the things, diagrams and visuals and some of the notes uh, that we've discussed. Uh, we began with this one up top here, just talking about you know, the, the, the pressures of life that we all face and the effect that those things have on mind and body. Um, and I call it the sag in the beam, right? There's a sag in the beam that these these pressures cause, but when you add to the daily pressures of life things like fear and anxiety and unresolved guilt and anger, then you, you compound the problem, right? And that's what we have going on and, and people that are, are dealing with this uh, on a regular basis. Oh, we also looked here at the bottom at what we call the emotion tree. So you know, we're not going to walk through all these individually, but some of you said that that was very helpful um, for you to kind of get your mind around the things that we're talking about. Uh, on the back of that first page, we had the breakdown of Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 10. Life as God sees it, change as God does it. Um, again, some of this is from, uh, some of these ideas at least come from, you may have read Instrument in the Redeemer's Hands, uh, David Pollison with uh, CCEF. Uh, a lot of these guys have taught on these principles through the years, and this is just sort of my own uh, kind of... Uh, uh, putting all this together in a way that makes sense to me and something that I use in counseling. But hopefully, again, these are, these, are, these are ways for you to understand what the Scriptures are saying about these issues and then hopefully a helpful way to articulate these things and actually transfer these truths to other people. So I'm just going to tell you, if, if these things right here, if, if it were you, I mean, i do this. I would fold this up, not now, but after we're done, fold it up and put it in your Bible because I'm just saying these are great. You having these things accessible and, and, and close to you, and then being in op- count, uh, conversations with people, even over the holidays, right? I mean, some of you are going into holiday experiences where you're going to be meeting with relatives and friends that are struggling with these things, and what a great opportunity to take what you've been learning and to talk about the sufficiency of God's Word and the Gospel and, and Christ and all of that. And so, again, these are, these are ways to sort of explain uh, the, these dynamics that we all are familiar with. There at the bottom, uh, we call this the this inner circle of responsibility versus the outer circle of concern. Again, a great way to uh, reinforce these things. The difference between, on the next page, concern and anxiety and sort of the focus uh, when we have what we call a, a balanced, uh, a passionate 
but balanced concern regarding things that are in our lives that we should be concerned about versus sinful anxiety, which is an, an inordinate concern about those things, where we're, we're, we're trying to control things that are outside of our control. We're trying to manage things that God never gave to us as God-given responsibilities, um, which creates this anxiety and, and, and the focus of those things on the right-hand side. Uh, the balanced gospel was another thing we looked at a couple of times, again, just trying to, to understand the balance between the comfort of the gospel and the call of the gospel. Um, Really, we brought this up in that discussion about motivation, that we need to be obedient to the Lord's commands, but there needs to be an underlying motivation regarding that and why we do what we do. Uh, we don't want to fall short and, and just focus on the, those indicatives of the gospel that we talked about and fail to actually follow through in obedience, but we don't want to make the error on the other side of getting wrapped up, focused on all the the commands of Scripture and not understand all of those things that God has done for us in Christ. So that was also, I think, uh, a helpful thing for us. And then on the back, this was the list of things. So I've just sort of gone through here and and, and summarized these. Uh, We spread them out over, I said, several weeks. Uh, But how to affect lasting change. Uh, Number one, identifying fears, asking yourself questions that reveal expectations and beliefs, desires, all of that, number two. Number three, viewing your fear or anxiety as something that can be pointing to problems in your inner life uh, and also as an opportunity to glorify God. Number four, see your fearful or anxious heart for what it is, a heart that doubts, denies, and disobeys God and His truth. Deal biblically with evident guilt through repentance and faith, uh, which involves a righteous motivation and entrustment to God's character and promises and an act of self-denial. All those are parts of what we mean by repentance and faith. Talk about the fear of the Lord, uh, studying, also studying key passages related to specific fears and, and worries, clarifying um, what you are trusting God to do, so being more specific in our prayers about what we're actually asking God to do in the situation. Doing that will help you to sort of sort out are you expecting God to do something that he has not promised to do in his word? Like, are you sort of claiming something in your prayer life that God did not say he would do? Uh, And to be specific about your requests, because Philippians 4 tells us to do that with prayer and supplication. We talk about how that word supplication is a word meaning specific requests. And so getting out of the generalities, getting down to specific situations and people and relationships and and again, the cares of this life and, and truly entrusting those things to the Lord. Number nine, doing the next loving thing. Uh, remembering that the great commandment, uh, love the Lord your God, and then also to love your neighbor as yourself. So we, we are always accountable to do those things. So we need to be asking ourselves in those situations, what, is, what does loving my neighbor look like in this situation? And then by faith, doing the next loving thing rather than allowing anxiety and fear to sort of paralyze us, cause us to, to freeze up and not be faithful. Uh, remind yourself of God's ultimate deliverance. Rejoice daily over what the Lord has done for you. Think rightly about God. All these came to us out of Philippians 4. Again, change the way that you pray. Control your imagination and your thoughts. All those what-ifs. Number 15, divide your concerns into different categories so that you distinguish between things you need to address now and must address now. Uh, versus things you can only address later, versus things you have no control over. So again, just in your own mind, clarifying these things, because the reality is by the time we're in that sort of cycle of of anxious thoughts, 
all these things are all in. It's just a big stew, right? In other words, we're not thinking in typical. We're not thinking in categories. All this stuff's just sort of one big lump. And so what we have to do in our thought life is kind of divide these things out to really know what's going on. Um, Number 16, focusing your attention and energy on, again, fulfilling today's responsibilities, understanding the relationship between risk, prudence, providence, enjoying the good gifts God has given you, cultivating a humility that embraces submission to others, accepts God's providences, transfers your cares onto the Lord, makes you spiritually alert and knits you closer to believers rather than isolates you from them. We said that, that is, it's, it's nothing but pride to say I'm the only one that's experiencing this. Right, and so that's why in First Peter five, Peter reminds us that there are other there's other brethren, there are other brothers and sisters out there that are experiencing the very same things that we are, uh, and that should cause us to grow to, to to grow closer to those in the body of Christ, not isolate ourselves from them, uh, because that's what we need. We need to we need to be dependent upon the the Lord's church and those relationships. Number twenty, live every day intensely focused and prepared, expecting Jesus to return for you. So, without question, there are tons of uncertainties in life and a lot of things that we don't know, but what we're saying is that rather than worry and fret and make your own way, we need to know the certainty of God's care. So, a lot of uncertainties, but we need to remind ourselves of the certainty of God's care, learn contentment, and then put our efforts into serving the Lord and serving others, because unbiblical responses to uncertainty produce sinful fear and anxiety, which if not dealt with, can easily move to obsessive thinking, which is at the root of most compulsive behaviors. So this is that part, we didn't quite get there last time, of just kind of kind of following this through, of how if you, we talked about how to respond to these situations, these uncertainties of life. But we didn't come back around and really address what would happen if we didn't. And this is what you typically see in people's lives. You see this progression, this, this unbiblical response to what's going on to people and to circumstances and what's going on in our own hearts, which generates this, this uh, wa- sort of um, uh, cyclical sort of washing machine effect, things going round and round in our hearts and minds, anxieties, uh, anxious thoughts, which tend to morph into obsessive thoughts, uh, which lies at the root of many of these compulsive behaviors. That is to say, mishandling anxiety usually leads to perfectionistic or controlling behaviors. Okay, uh, per- Perfectionistic behaviors where a person has a preoccupation with orderliness, most often driven by a fear of losing control and accompanied by the pride of accomplishment when successful. For example... Uh, a preoccupation with keeping physical, uh, physical appearances in order. So this person says, I, ha- I must wear the same clothes within a three-week rotation. I must not be seen anywhere without my makeup. I must not wear clothes that are not perfectly pressed. And so we're trying to, even in our own appearance, we, we, we sort of exhibit this, this controlling uh, behavior. Uh, it, it manifests itself sometimes in a preoccupation with keeping uh, surroundings in order, uh, I, I must rotate the furniture in every room often enough so that, that, so that the carpet wears evenly in all places. I must redecorate, it's, listen to this moms, I must redecorate the Christmas tree so that it is perfect after the kids have tried to decorate it. All right, so it's coming behind people and it's, it's, it's fixing everything. I must arrange everything in my closet so that all the hangers go the same way and the blouses are arranged by color in the order of the rainbow. 
I must not allow anyone to touch anything on my desk. Now, I'm not sure that's... How did I even get that in here? I don't think that's... <laughs> the stapler, the note cards, the letter opener, the so forth. You know, I want to know precisely where they are. And folks, I mean, we can laugh about this stuff. And again, just because you do some of these things, we're not saying, you've got a major problem with some sin in your heart if you have these tendencies. I'm saying, folks, we are creatures of habit. Okay, we're going to acknowledge that. We're creatures of habit. Habits are not necessarily sinful, right? But what I'm saying is these things can get out of hand. True, right? These things can get out of hand. And I'm just saying if you see these things in someone else or your own life, you've got to at least ask the question. You've got to go back to the heart. You've got to at least go back to your heart and see if there's something that's driving those things. Now, what happens in some cases is people end up with anxious thoughts. They don't resolve those things biblically. They lead to these, these sort of uh, churning effect. They develop these behaviors. The actual thoughts and that stuff changes over time, but the behaviors continue because of what? Because we are creatures of habit. So sometimes people develop these habits, but when you actually discuss these things with them, sometimes the connection between what they're doing and the thing that they were worrying about five years ago, it's, it's like that connection's been sort of broken, but yet they continue the behaviors because there's, there's habits there. So I'm just saying you start with the habit, you work backwards, right? So if you've got compulsive behaviors, you go back to obsessive thinking and then just ask yourself, what do you think about? What are you thinking about, <laughs> right? I mean, what is the meditation of your heart in your life on a daily basis? You know, what are you thinking about in the moment? And then you trace that back and you, and you look at what the scriptures say about anxiety and fear and then about these, this whole issue of uncertainty in life. You know, how do you handle uncertainties of life? Do you trust in the certainty of God's character in these things? What about a preoccupation with keeping performance in order? I must practice more than the teacher requires so that I can play my violin piece perfectly for my next lesson. I must hit all the, all the, all the baskets whenever I shoot in the game. I must work 70, 80, 90 hours a week to show the boss that I am not a slacker. I mean, some people, this stuff comes out and is manifested in, their, in the performance of what they do, their hobbies, their work, and those things. A preoccupation with keeping schedules and responsibilities in order. I must plan out every day in 10-minute increments if I am to be a good steward of my time. I must uh, keep the kids on a strict schedule for everything from their wake-up time uh, until bedtime if I am to develop a responsible character in them. I mean, moms, again, there's a a difference here between teaching your kids discipline, right, and organization, and then taking it to a sinful level. Right, where nobody's, everybody's uptight around you because everything's got to be done your way. Right? It's got to be done this way. And again, there's a heart issue behind these things. A preoccupation with keeping spiritual disciplines. I must be sure to do my devotions every day or God will judge me for my unfaithfulness. I must be sure that my children always behave in church or I am showing that I am not a good parent. What about finances? I must spend whatever time is necessary on the internet to be sure that the model of appliance I'm purchasing is the best deal for my money. I must stay up all night if necessary to find the five-cent discrepancy in the checkbook this month. I must not throw out any of the shipping cartons or cardboard boxes of anything I buy in case I have to return it, even if it's years later. I must find a job that makes better money because I owe it to myself and to my family. What about health? I must keep strict accounting of my caloric intake, fat grams, refined carbs, preservatives, or I cannot say that I am being a good steward of my body. I must be sure I take the absolute most helpful food supplements or I have nobody to blame but myself if I get sick. What about relationships? Keeping those in order. I I must not let my children ever question my decisions. It is the only way that they will learn to respect my position. 
I must spend every Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter with my family. I must daily spend a minimum of two hours with each child so that they will grow up thinking, so that they will not grow up thinking that I didn't love them. I'm just saying, folks, these are this stuff, this is everyday stuff. This is everyday stuff. And then there are compulsive behaviors, which are excessive, repetitive activities that seem to give temporary relief from the obsessive thoughts that plague the heart and mind. Behaviors that are performed even when negative effects are experienced as a result. So what's interesting is that they, people will ex- experience these compulsive behaviors, but they actually affect their life in a negative way, and they don't acknowledge it. They might see it, and they might just say they don't acknowledge it. It's just they don't acknowledge it to the point that they actually change the behaviors. So that these things come as a consequence of their behaviors. Wasted time, the decline of work performance, the destruction of relationships, the compromise of good, good health, or the hindrance of the, that person's spiritual life. Uh, these compuls- compulsive behaviors are manifested in different ways. You have ritualistic behaviors, which should not surprise us, being that ritual is at the heart of every man-made attempt to quiet a guilty or a fearful heart. I mean, that's where, all, all, that's where ritual comes from. That's where a lot of these, that's why people come up with alternatives to what the Bible teaches about how to, how to, how to be saved, right? <laughs> how to be forgiven, how to have a clear conscience. That's why all these religions all over the world, right? What are they dealing with? They're dealing with the fact that they know God exists, they have a guilty conscience, and they're going to face Him in the judgment, and they're trying to come up with some way to, to, to satisfy that, right? They want to they clear the guilt, Right? They don't want to be thinking about those things, and so in order to quiet a guilty and a fearful heart, they come up with ritualistic behaviors to do that. There's destructive behaviors where the person inflicts injury on themselves, for instance, cutting or scratching the skin until it bleeds or self-starvation. There's avoidance behaviors where the person will do almost anything to escape the feeling of being overwhelmed. And so they'll, for example, escape to isolation uh, such as agoraphobia, where they're just afraid to put themselves in a situation where they're going to be uh, embarrassed or where they're going to have this, this fearful experience uh, or possibly uh, an escape to pleasure, such as illicit sex or gambling, drug use, those kinds of things. So as most of you can tell, I've drawn some conclusions. And just in case you're wondering, I'm not sort of waffling on what, at least what I believe about these, these emotions uh, and what God's Word has to say about that. I have drawn some conclusions. I have formed some convictions when it comes to fear and to worry. And what I thought I would do today is just share a few of those, just sort of in summary. Um, and I'm, and I'm going to go somewhere with this, uh, because I'm, at the very end I'm going to make a, a shameless plug for something. <laughs> but I'm going to go through just three. Let me just walk through three of these, all right? Three of my conclusions, just sort of, if you've been with us again, kind of summarizing these things. First of all, my first conclusion is this. Anxiety is the fear that you will not get what you need or want. It is driven by unbelief and discontent, and that is why worry is always portrayed in the Bible as a spiritual problem. Okay? Therefore, any solutions that we pursue must deal with the spiritual issues involved. And if that is not our approach then we can expect further isolation and feelings of isolation from God and further complications from our anxiety. That is what will always happen when we forsake the Lord, the fountain of living waters, and make for ourselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no, no water. Jeremiah 2.13, right? So this is, 
at the core, it is a, is a spiritual issue, and that is why the Bible just goes straight at it and just says, do not do this. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. And then tells you why you should not be anxious and afraid. Right? The Bible claims this. It's like this is God's jurisdiction. Right? Is the Bible saying, I speak to this. The Lord is saying, I speak to this. And so at the root of this, there is a spiritual problem. Again, I'm not saying that there's not uh, physical uh, components involved. There's not organic uh, problems, physiological problems. We'll talk about that in a moment. But what I'm saying is that we are fools to think that fear and anxiety are something that we struggle with, and as common as that is, and that the Lord would have nothing to say about it. When the Lord is, the, the, the scriptures are full of counsel when it comes to these things. And so we have got to, we've got to have that, I think, as a, as a conviction in our life. Um, that what anxiety is from God's perspective, it is an issue of unbelief, it is an issue of discontent, and, and, and that there is this spiritual core um, that must be addressed if we're really going to, to get a handle on this. It was interesting. I talked to, uh, I, was, I was listening to an audio thing last night at MP3 about a guy who does a lot. He works with a, an, a, a ministry up in Ohio, I believe, where they help with a PTSD guys that are coming from back, they've served overseas, they're coming back, and this is such a common diagnosis for... And folks, Tim Brown said this this week, he said, if you come back from seeing all that stuff and you don't have PTSD, something's wrong with you. you know. And, and what he meant by that is just saying, if that stuff doesn't affect you, something's wrong, right? So we're not denying there's an effect. What we're saying is, should we relegate those kind of things to the, to the world? Should we just say, well, those Christians don't have any counsel on that, we don't know what you know, that's, that's, a, that's a diagnosis that it's, it's, we don't understand. The Word of God has nothing to say about that. Or should we say, no, 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 the Bible claims jurisdiction over that. And so this guy on this MP3 was talking about in this ministry, these guys come in, he said, we have these guys for an entire week. So they bring them in for this intensive. It's basically five straight days, and they spend from every waking hour, they're talking with these guys, uh, counseling them, you know, t- trying to understand what's going on and all this kind of stuff. But it was interesting. He said, you know how much time of that entire week we spent talking about PTSD sort of from the secular vantage point? Sort of what, it, what are we saying when we use that label, post-traumatic stress uh, disorder? He said, we spend 45 minutes. And then we spend the entire week diving into what the scriptures have to say about how to deal with your past. And, and what we believe and all that. And so he's just saying, we want them to know that we get what, we know why you, ca- you came here because you got this diagnosis. But we're not going to spend all week talking about what the world has to say about your problems. We're going to show you how relevant the scriptures are to what you're facing. And he's just talked about the amazing change in these men's lives. Of course, those men have to trust Christ, right? It's like, I mean, you, you, can, you can only counsel Christians, if you think about it, from this perspective. Because if they're not believers, they're going to reject this. But, but assuming that these men are, are followers of Christ, it just opens up just all kinds of hope for these men when they realize that the Scriptures are sufficient in these ways. So, that's my first conclusion. Conclusion number two, conviction number two is this, that you as a believer don't have to spend your life enslaved to fear and worry. You do not have to spend your life enslaved to fear and worry. You do have the ability by the new life and by the power of the Spirit to exercise restraint and overcome temptation. You have, and we've said it time and time again, I just think it's worth repeating, you have everything that you need for a godly life. 
The Scriptures themselves claim that they are enough to make our lives what God wants our lives to be. Saved, sanctified, liberated, complete, and fully equipped for service. So the Scriptures themselves say all those things, right? So you don't have to spend your life that way because the Bible itself claims these things. It claims that it, the, it provides all that is necessary to draw you to the Lord Himself, to give you a true knowledge of God. He uh, gives you all that you need for trusting God perfectly and for obeying Him and for living up to that calling of the gospel. So there, there is no such thing as a psychological problem unrelated to spiritual or physical causes. All problems in living, whether they're emotional, mental, relational, or behavioral, have a spiritual core. The Bible also has all we need to help us to order our affections or those desires, right, that are in our lives. Every day we make decisions about the object of our greatest delight. And Scripture points us to something beyond the challenges of our physical bodies and our life situations. We all have a heart, a soul, an inner person, and can choose to love and adore Christ in a way that transcends everything else that could be placed on the table. The Bible has all we need to explain our identity in Christ, because every person has to decide who they are. And Christians are not primarily defined by what they have done or what has been done to them. The most important thing about us is who we are in Christ. Right? That's, why that, that's why that song is so rich. Right? It's not in, my worth is not in these things of this world. It's not in my performance. It's not in my accomplishment. It's not in my, my innate goodness. It's not in these things. Right? It's in Christ. The Bible also has all that we need to reveal the motivations of our hearts. Scripture challenges us to face the hard reality that we are not passive victims but active worshipers who continually reveal the identity of our functional gods by the ways that we think, speak, and behave and by the way that we use our bodies and respond to our environment. The Bible has all we need to change us into the image of Christ. Scripture helps us to understand that as we grow in our love for Jesus at the level of our hearts, we can use our bodies as instruments of righteousness says Romans 6.13, and respond to our circumstances in ways that conform us and make us more like Him, Romans 8.28 and 29. And the Bible has all that we need to find our hope in eternity. We all live in a body that is cursed by sin and that, imp- and that impacts our choices on a daily basis. And our challenges are magnified when we consider the influence of our environment, the people and the circumstances around us in both the past and the present. The reality is that for many Christians, the weaknesses of their body or the pain of their circumstances don't improve in this life. Yet, while the Bible never minimizes the pain, it does help us to put the challenges of life in proper perspective. So we have to tell people sometimes that come to us with very painful and hard circumstances, your circumstance may not get better. That's a big pill for people to swallow, right? When they come and you say, I can't tell you that that situation is going to improve. What I can do is I can help you to understand that you have a, uh, you have a biblical framework. You have a, pe- a pair of glasses, so to speak, that you can put on through which to view your circumstances that will, that will inject hope into your situation, right? So even if, these, even if the pain in the body doesn't go away, even if you continue to deteriorate, right? Even David Pallison himself, I mentioned this, I think, last week, that he, you, know, he, you thought he had stage one cancer. They go in for surgery. In the middle of surgery, they realize he has stage four. 
pancreatic cancer, right? So what's gonna, what are you going to do in that moment, right? You know, you can, you can, you can go to the prosperity gospel if you, if you would like and, and name it and claim it, right? Health and wealth. Or you can go to the scriptures and realize that uh, there's a, a curse upon this world, right? Genesis 3, right? And we're, and we're, we're not promised that those kind of circumstances are going to turn around, this side, of, this side of heaven. So, but we can be victorious, right? Doesn't mean, doesn't mean the, al- the alternative is not fretting and being fearful, right? We can trust the Lord. We can grow through these things. And the Word of God equips us for such situations. Weeks ago, we mentioned this powerful truth. You began your Christian life with everything. You began your Christian life with everything. You are not waiting for those things. You have the spirit, the resources, the sufficient word, the mind of Christ, and resurrection power. You do not have to yield to the flesh. You do not have to be afraid. You do not have to fret. The other day, I heard Dr. Phil again. Occasionally, I like to listen to Dr. Phil. <laughs> it's, my, it's just my it's a weakness of mine. I heard Dr. Phil again appeal for, and it always amazes me. I mean, that guy in 40, is it even 45 minutes? I guess it's an hour-long show. I never watched the whole entire thing, but I just get little snippets of it. But, man, that, I mean, in one hour, that guy can turn, I mean, he can turn that family around so fast. Um, it, you, you leave the show just, like, that's it. Like, they're great. I mean, like, like they lived happily ever after. You know, you kind of get that impression at the end of the show. But he makes this appeal for people to be a guest on his show with this question. He looks into the camera and he says, Do you have a story that only I can help solve? That's his appeal for for future uh, people to come onto his show. So he's saying, you know, send us your information, send us your details, and we'll decide if you're worthy. You know, if you fit fit what we want, which again, think about how many people probably submit things to their show, and then they only select certain ones. There's a reason why they probably only select certain ones, right? Because they want to give Dr. Phil a softball, right? Big fat one, right? Just like, like any of us could probably say what he's about to say, but the guy comes off looking like, what, man, that was incredible. I mean, look at the, cha- the change was happening right there on the stage. Do you have a story that only I can help solve? A problem, a problem that only he can help. That, that sounds like some of the expert talkers of the Apostle Paul's day who claimed they were elite thinkers who possessed superior insight necessary for overcoming suffering and defeating sin. Those who argued that without their advanced teaching, their progressive wisdom and special knowledge, no one could handle life maturely. And Paul's shepherd's heart was angered by such elitism. Listen to his words in Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Because, and he says this in one verse three times, essentially. Christ's wisdom is for everyone. There is no part of Christian teaching that is, that is reserved for the spiritually elite. All the truth of God is for all the people of God. And so Paul says, beware, beware of those who by secular, sin-distorted human reasoning attempt to cure souls. Which brings me to one final conclusion and conviction. When it comes to addressing what is wrong with us and how to fix it, 
Nobody has a greater right and responsibility to speak of these issues and to offer hope and help than the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'll I'll illustrate this. This might be helpful. All right. Obviously, we want to deal with when we counsel and we're making disciples. We want to deal with the whole person. People come to us. If you think about just a situation, okay. So let's say David Pallison walks in. Okay. So here's a guy who's he's experiencing suffering. Right. He's got pain. He's got some big decisions to face. Do you have sir? What do you do? Do you just sort of close everything up and just just deal with the pain? Uh, do you try treatments? You know, where, where do you go from here? So there's obviously in that situation some physical, biological components that are going on, and yet there are also some spiritual things, right, that are impacting that. And so sort of the way I think about this is that we're dealing with the whole person with two distinct parts. Now think about these two passages. Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Two parts. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Two parts. So we have this thing the Scriptures refer to as the inner man. This is everything immaterial about us. Uh, It's referred to in Scripture as the soul. Um, The reason I put the heart there is because that's the most comprehensive Old Testament, New Testament term for what we're talking about. Uh, it's mentioned in the New American Standard Version over, I think it's 831 times. The, the word heart is mentioned, not as in your like physical organ, but in this sort of spiritual sense. So this, this sort of comprehensive inner man, this heart thing, everything immaterial and soul. And then we have the outer man, right? Everything material, uh, or the body, as it says in Matthew 10, 28. And we recognize this, and doctors recognize this, that your thoughts, your emotions, and choices can impact the outer person, right? So the way that what's going on in the inner life affects what's going on with a person in, their, in, in the material things, right, in the outer man. And then there's this other thing that goes on, right? We recognize this too, that the outer person can impact the inner person, okay? So things that are going on affect us. So when our heart starts to rapidly beat for whatever reason, that impacts us, right? People begin to immediately associate that with spiritual things. And so the difficulty in counseling is that this is going on constantly, and I don't have a way to take a, a, a laser and sort of sep- always separate perfectly out where one ends and where one begins and which is going which direction. But I think it's clear in Scripture. We can recognize this as a dynamic, right, that's going on. And then the inner man interacts with God, right? So this is where God does His work, right? In our soul, in our inner life, of course, we're to use our outer man as a means to, right, as instruments of righteousness, right? So our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's all these, it's not as if we separate these things to such an extent that we're like, we're just focused on the heart issues. Who could, it could care less about what's going on with our bodies? No, because the, the Lord claims authority over that, jurisdiction over that, and says, no, your body belongs to me, right? It's just our, our outer man, if you will, is sort of animated by our inner man. So we, we, it's, we, we carry out our obedience through our body, right, through those material faculties, but those things are coming from the inner man, 
right? So which we're going to go and we're going to we'll go into the worship service in a moment. And things are going to be going on in our hearts, and we're going to be speaking words, right? We're going to be singing songs, right? And so we're using our, the material side, right? We're using the, our physical bodies as a way to express what is going on in the inner life, okay? So these things, they affect one another. Now, this is the interesting thing. You can go back through church history, and what you'll find especially in the, in the, in the, in the days uh, post-Reformation, pastors were viewed as physicians of the soul and medical doctors were, were seen and viewed as physicians of the body. Okay? So when it came to the inner life of a person, and you'll see this in Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls. That word in the Greek is psyche or suke, right? That's psychology, right? What is psychology? Psychology is the study of the soul, right? So this passage says this is what pastors and church leaders do. They keep watch over your soul, your inner life, as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Okay, so what I'm saying is when we're talking about anxiety and we're talking about fear, folks, we're talking about soul care, all right, this is about biblical soul care. Christ isn't supreme just over spiritual issues, but over daily issues of relating, thinking, choosing, behaving, and feeling. And for far too long, the church has given up crucial ground on this. And so here's what happened in the 20th century, all right, just to kind of break this down for you. What happened in the 20th century is we created a third category. All right, psychology came along and basically created a third category and said this, that when it comes to thinking and when it comes to choices and when it comes to emotions, issues of the soul, that is for us. That's for the psychologist and for the psychiatrist. Now, if we're talking about spiritual things, which they narrow down to mean only your relationship with God, that's for the pastor. So that what the pastor does is the pastor deals with the spiritual issues. The psychologist and psychiatrist deal with the soul issues, and the doctor, the medical doctor, deals with the physical issues. Okay? So what they did is they just cut the pastor out. Right? They say, no, if this person is dealing with thought issues and behavior issues and choice, the, 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 the what is wrong with us question, the what is wrong with us and why do we do what we do and how can we change questions... That is not for the Christian or the pastor to, to stick his nose into that. And so they cut the pastor out. They cut, in fact, I would say beyond just pastors, because pastors are explicitly called to do this. But I'm saying, folks, you're called to do this, right? I mean, what are you doing, all those one another's in the New Testament? You're to admonish one another, encourage one another, counsel one another, rebuke one another, right? All those one another's of Scripture, that's essentially the ministry of counseling, and so what, that, what the secular world has done, and unfortunately the church has bought into it and given up this ground, is they've just said, they're right, we don't, we, don't, we don't have any authority over this area, right? And so if you have an anxiety issue or you have some compulsive behavior, then we need to kick that out to the, to the psycho- psychologist or the therapist or the professionals because only they know how to really deal with these issues. These are way too complex for the church to handle. And for too long, we've bought into the lie and the propaganda 
that when the messy issues of life strike a member of our church family, that our job is to simply hug, pray, and refer. We give them a hug, we tell them we love them, we pray for them, and then we refer and say, but we, can't, we, we don't have answers for that. And so what I'm trying to convince you, so sort of going from all that we've discussed in the last several months regarding anxiety and fear, one of the things that, you know, I mean, I want you to, to, to grasp is this thing right here, right? That when it comes to addressing these things, we have, nobody has a greater right and responsibility than we do as believers to speak into these things and about these things. These are matters of discipleship. These are matters of accountability. These are matters of mentoring. These are matters of biblical counseling. All within the context of the loving, gracious, and supportive care of a local church ministry and its leadership. Nobody understands human nature more than the Christian. Nobody understands the workings of the conscience. Nobody understands the deceitfulness of sin. Nobody understands the wiles of the devil. Nobody is better at accurately analyzing and effectively prescribing remedies for soul problems more than a biblically informed, faithful follower of Christ. You hear me? You get this? Okay, so now I've just added a huge responsibility onto you by doing that. Because... Not only am I saying that if you struggle with worry and fear and anxieties, that the scriptures are sufficient for you to deal with those things in your own life. I'm saying you need to work through those things biblically so that you can have a, a level of victory in your life so that then you can, and your, uh, the opportunities, folks, are endless, so that you can then turn around and minister to other people with God's word. So you're going to have, again, this, these opportunities. You're going to have them this week. You're going to get around fearful people. You're going to get around people that are, that are wringing their hands about, about, about the invasion from Mexico, you know, or, you know, who's going to be the next president or the fact that, you know, uh, our, our state, the, 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 the level of flu cases are on the rise or, I mean, it's, it's, going, to be, it's going to be one thing or, or another, right? They're going to be fearful and anxious about things going on in the culture and in their own personal lives. There's broken and fractured relationships, in the family, all this stuff. And I'm saying you need to not only be confident in the sufficiency of God's word to deal with these issues, but you need to be able to use the word of God to speak into those things in people's lives and give them the clarity that they need in that. Now, all that, right, here's my shameless plug. And some of you have been to our counseling training, which is coming up in January. In fact, how many of you have been to this? Raise your hand. Yeah, we got a bunch of people in our church. We got over 200 people in our church that have been to this. So if you've been, we want you to come back. Obviously, this thing is just sort of, you, you hear it's new stuff every year. It's just building one, one, one brick upon the next. If you've been before, if you've never been, we'd love for you to be there. We encourage every adult in the church to be a part of this. It's not, it's not because we're going to solve all these problems in a conference, but, but it, is a, it is a way for us. It's a, this is just a tool for us as a church to take the things that we have, for instance, talked about in the last three months regarding anxiety. Believe it or not, in track one, we spend one hour talking about anxiety and fear. So we've done a whole lot more here, right? So you're, it's not, it's, you can't cover everything, but we try to equip our folks to be confident in the Word of God when it comes to these issues and when it comes to the ministry that God has called us to as believers and followers of Christ. So I would encourage you to be a part of that uh, if you can. It's, it's not, like I said, it's not, you know, 
you know, if you're not able to go, we're not going to hold it against you. We're not, we're not going to create two classes of people in our church, those who've done the conference, those who haven't done the conference. It's not that. It's just, it's just a way to reinforce the very things we've been discussing in weeks past. And, uh, you know, I mean, Greg, you've been, you did track two last year, right? Or, or three? You, did you three? Yeah, I mean, so people come, they come back. It's Like I said, they're just... And, and you'll be years down the road, and you could go back after being out for years, and, and you would learn more, And right? So you're not going to be able to absorb everything that's there, and it's not the end all, right? But it is, it is a, a sort of a tool and a vehicle that we use in our church to, to, to in, just to disciple you in these things so that you can be a discipler, right? You can turn around and minister to others. Now... One final thing. I'm going to keep you for five more minutes, and I just want to read this article. I gave you an article, okay, and I'm just, you, you can chew on this over the break because when we come back, we're not going to talk about it again, but um, this was an article out of RTS. Some of you may be familiar, and some of you guys may have heard this. I, I, I read this to my men's group. Uh, I gave it to Shane Kohler. He, he read it to, I think, his men's group and talked about this in their men's Bible study, but this was a, just a two-page article in Reformed Theological Seminaries their quarterly magazine that came to my house a while back. Uh, this, was the, this is for the fall of 2018, and I just want you to hear, this is what we're dealing with, okay? And I have a high regard for RTS. I mean, I, lo- I love them for many things, but this is the part that just really, really uh, concerns me, okay? So listen to what this guy Paul Schwartz says in this article. Janet showed up in Dr. Guy Richardson's counseling office, anxious, depressed, discouraged, and burdened with feelings of failure. Fellow believers had loved her and encouraged her with Bible verses like, Be anxious for nothing. But after months of trying to change, she felt guilty because she hadn't pulled out of her anxiety and depression. That's when Dr. Richardson asked Janet several seemingly random questions, after which he encouraged her to seek further medical evaluation. Good move. We encourage that. Janet came back to Dr. Richardson two weeks later with a different countenance. It turned out that her thyroid was not functioning adequately, which, which, can, be caused, which can cause increased anxiety or depression. So when prescribed medication by her doctor, Janet felt truly different starting the very next day. Great. Her problems, which she and others had assumed were primarily... Now, notice, just think, think about the way that they're laying this out and the words they use. Her problems, which she and others had presume, assumed were primarily spiritual had proven to be interwoven with psychological and biological aspects. With the biological piece addressed, she was freer to work on the other aspects of her situation. Dr. Richardson tells the story of Janet, not her real name, to illustrate the importance of the clinically competent aspect of the Master of Arts in Counseling program offered by RTS. There are various levels at which things may be going on, and it takes adequate training about both God's word and God's world to perceive them. So here we are. They're introducing the concept of general revelation when they say God's world. Okay. Our learning about general. This is Dr. Richardson. Our learning about general revelation is subservient to the special revelation of the Bible, but learning about God's about general revelation is God's gift to us and important as we work out how to live in obedience to God's commands, especially when we consider the complexity and uniqueness of each person as being made in the image of God. Dr. James Hurley, longtime RTS Jackson professor with earned doctorate in both theology and counseling, adds, Our biblical Reformed worldview stresses that all the world is under the lordship of Christ. As Christ's servants, we want to treat the whole person. Dr. Said, uh, Dr. Scott Coupland, professor of counseling at RTS Orlando, concurs, To be holistic and biblically responsible, our approach to people's problems must be based on an awareness of the whole person, not just as spiritual beings, but also taking into account biological, psychological, and social aspects of what it means to be human as well. 
I don't think that we have a scalpel sharp enough to know where one element of our being ends and another starts. To illustrate the importance of learning from God's gift of general revelation as well as, as God's special revelation in the Bible, Dr. Richardson uses an analogy. While the Bible commands us to feed the poor, it says nothing about how or what to cook, he observes. These are analogies, by the way, are just, I don't, they don't, I don't even know how to connect the dots. But we have to learn from other sources, from general revelation, if you will, how to do these things. So think about what just, he just said. You know you're supposed to feed the poor, but you don't know how to do that. And how are you supposed to find out how to feed the poor? Through what? General revelation. Do you know what general revelation is, theologically? What, who, what is the content of gen- general revelation tells us about what? Does it tell us about how to feed the poor? What does it tell us about? God. God is the subject of general revelation. Okay? So what they've just done, okay, in the stroke of a pen, think about this, because this is what is it's so hard to fight through this. They have just taken social sciences, right? And uh, so psychology, uh, sociology, all they have just recategorized them as what? General revelation. Which, by the way, if you were to go to any theology book, would a theology book tell you that there is authority behind general revelation? Are you accountable to what general revelation teaches? Yes. So what they just did is they basically put this big stamp of authority on the social sciences. According to Dr. Richardson, we already learned from general revelation to minister in the church. God instructs us in Proverbs 22.6 to train up our children and to help apply this. Nearly all Sunday school curricula take advantage of things we have learned from developmental psychology about how children learn and effective techniques for training children in age-appropriate ways. It should be the same in counseling. As Christian counselors, we should see every level of our being under the authority of and through the eyes of Scripture, even as we learn by studying God's creation many things that can help us apply His instructions given to us for life. Trained Christian counselors strengthen many church ministries at a point of need. Busy pastors have limited time to disciple their flocks, and many are hard-pressed to deal with complex problems with the physical, psychological, social, and spiritual aspects such as Janet's, which, by the way, Janet had a what problem? A physical problem that was cured with medication, right? (laughs) So there wasn't even... So all of a sudden now Janet's got all all these problems, but which one is the pastor equipped to handle? Only the spiritual problems. Not the social, not the psychological. He says that, Dr. Richardson, that is the point at which specialized training and counseling can really make a difference. So the question that comes is, why would I encourage you to get counseling training if I disagree with that the, what that guy is saying, it's because I think you as a believer have a right and a responsibility to address the social and the mental and the relational and the spiritual problems in people's lives. And what they just did is say, we need another category of people in the church that are specifically equipped to deal with things, think of it, to deal with things that not even pastors can deal with. The doctor can't deal with it, Right? It's not a physical thing. It's not a spiritual thing. And what I'm saying is, no, when we're talking about soul care, we're talking about relationships and choices and emotions and thoughts, and yes, your relationship with God. So do you see the difference? And what I'm saying is, it, it, they're pushing here for Christian counseling. And somebody would say they're pushing here for biblical counseling. But this is just another form of integrationism, where they're taking the supposedly 
treasures of psychology and mixing them with the treasures of Christianity and coming up with a really awesome thing in the end. And what I'm saying is no, because what will ultimately happen is the so-called treasures of secular thinking will override the treasures of Scripture in the end. The one that will really win out will be the secular thinking, and it will be the tail wagging the dog in the end. It will not be Scripture trumping what the world has to say. It will ultimately, people will give up ground on what Scripture says the minute that they start down this road of saying Scripture doesn't deal with these things. So I'm just saying, if you want to know where we are, this is our conviction. All right, this is where we're going. This conference kind of puts a lot of more meat on the bones when it comes to that. But my final sort of charge to you is don't miss the opportunity you have this holiday. Don't miss the opportunity. You, you have lots of opportunities to, to live out, if you will, live out the sufficiency of Scripture. Live out the sufficiency of the resources you have in Christ and the gospel. Right? Don't concede these things. Right? Are there things to learn? That, yeah, by observing people and through social... There's not, I'm not saying there's no truth in that. What I'm saying is that is not general revelation. And if you can keep it out of the general revelation bucket, then what you're saying is that, yeah, we learn a lot of things, but what do we do? Because of the noetic effect of sin and depravity, we take what we see and observe and we twist it. Right? It's not inerrant. The reason that, think about this, the reason that the scriptures are sufficient is because the scriptures are inerrant. That is what makes the scriptures sufficient, because they are inerrant. And anything that you might learn out there about the way people relate just through observation, that is not inerrant, right? And that's why the theories continue to change and change and change again. And we have over 200 different schools of psychology, right? But we only have one book right? One word, and it's from God, and it's our authority. All right, folks. Well, hopefully that, again, just touching on some things we've discussed, putting a nice bow on it, and challenging you, encouraging you, because I'm not going to say a lot about this in the weeks to come, but to consider being a part of our conference, our training, and again, to be faithful in your own life uh, as as a counselor and as a discipler. All right? Thanks for your time.